0: You cannot plant a forest full of genetically similar trees and expect them to be resilient to the type of challenges that climate disruption and other stressors will throw at them. We're having very little genetic diversity in our forests. Those forests are not going to be able to be resilient to the problems that are the challenges that will befall them.
1: Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. If you care about the planet, this episode with conservation scientist and university professor Dr. Chris Daramont is one that you do not want to miss. From his research chair base at the University of Victoria, Chris oversees a team of researchers throughout BC. After earning a PhD in evolution and ecology from the University of Victoria, his postdoctoral work took him to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a large group of research partners. He has also worked closely with conservation leaders from the First Nations communities of coastal British Columbia. The wildlife and people of BC's Central Coast, an area popularly known as the Great Bear Rainforest, comprise a study system of particular interest for Chris and his team. In this episode, Chris and I discuss the Raincoast Conservation Foundation and his work with them for two decades. Chris helps to shed some light on British Columbia's dwindling forest the logging industry, and the limitations of commercial scale tree planting. We talk about the importance of our first growth forest and the role of grandmother trees to the health of forest ecology and the wildlife that lives there. As for the wildlife, Chris raises awareness on concerning issues related to salmon and the importance of many of BC's token animals such as caribou, wolves, mountain lions, and bears. We also spend some time discussing what he and I both agree is the atrocious concept of trophy hunting, which BC still permits in the case of many animals, despite overwhelming public outcry to the contrary. Can we put an end to trophy hunting? Chris and I certainly hope that we can, and the recent and senseless slaughter of Victoria's beloved island wolf Takea is bringing the issue once again to the forefront. If you care about the environment and its precious creatures, Pull up a chair while Professor Chris Daramont leads a little lesson in Conservation 101. Chris, it's really great to have you on the show today. I want to just jump right in and talk about your conservation work because it really impresses me and uh, it is so valuable to humankind and the planet. So let's begin there, if you don't mind sharing a bit about the work that you're currently doing.
0: Well, the, the truth is most of my work is mentoring graduate students and, and postdoctoral fellows. Most of the work that my graduate students uh, do is, is up coast in remote communities and involves the nexus of wildlife, people and the landscapes that that wildlife and people share. And it's applied research, we rarely ask questions without some sort of policy lever in mind that our collaborators and partners, mostly First Nations governments, can pull either their own policy levers uh, in operating as governments um, or in their negotiations with other levels of governments, uh, either the federal government or the province. Specifically, we work on large carnivores, mostly things like grizzly bears and black bears and, and the white spirit bear, also wolves, but also and increasingly on fishes, mostly salmon, uh, but others. And now increasingly into other natural resources in the environment with which um, people of this coast have relationships with And What I'm getting to here is, is with important uh, plants, including trees uh, that First Nations people value um above and beyond the value that that timber industries put on those trees so so we work on a bunch of things we're somewhat jack of all trades in that we as opposed to many other academic groups don't focus on one set of animals or one research technique we try to uh, respond to the interests of our first nations generally partners and study systems that lend themselves well to uh, the type of change that these first nations governments want to see in their territories and we bring to bear some of the tools that help us best address these applied research questions
1: well from where i sit it sounds like the work that you do is incredibly important all of it sounds uh, to be of a an utmost priority, is especially in today's cultures. Where do you do this work? Is this through the University of Victoria?
0: Yeah, well, uh, in part, yeah. So I, I wear two hats. Uh, uh, my my longest term hat, in fact, has been with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. And your listeners can find them at raincoast.org. And in fact, one of the uh, the offices of Raincoast is on the uh, Saanich Peninsula. We have other offices up... Uh, in Heltzik territory uh, in in the village of Bella, a, f- a float home up there. And we have a very mobile um, research station too in the form of a 70-foot uh, steel research vessel. Uh, her name is Achiever that that does marine work um, from the Salish Sea up to the border with Southeast Alaska. Uh, so I've been with Raincoast as, as a volunteer primarily since my mid-20s, about 20 years ago, Uh, and about eight years ago after finishing my graduate work and then spending a few years down in California as a postdoctoral researcher, I was afforded the the privilege to have a professorship at the University of Victoria, and it's a named professorship, uh, and it's named after Raincoast, and what that did was... Cemented a relationship between my lab at the university and Raincoast in that most of our trainees, our grad students and whatnot, do work that is of interest and supported by Raincoast. So the interaction between uh, Raincoast and and UVic can be really productive and and really meaningful in that that we get a lot of applied rigorous science done, and importantly, it's science. That is done in service of the environment, in service of um, our First Nations partners, and so it's kind of a different way to do to do science compared to a lot of my peers at at, at, at universities. It's uh, it's a real treat.
1: What does Raincoast do? What's their the work for the Raincoast Conservation Foundation?
0: Yeah, yeah. So so Raincoast has been around for about. 20 years. Uh, it distinguished itself from other nonprofits in that um, most of the members of Raincoast are also academics. So it's very much a science based organization that um, subjects their work to peer reviewed um, uh, scrutiny uh, and appears in scientific journals. So at the heart of, of Raincoast is this idea that advocacy needs to be not only well articulated but well uh, informed and defensible and in fact we've, we've kind of coined the term informed advocacy is at the heart of, of at least the advocacy that that Raincoast does on behalf of landscapes or animals etc um, and uh, there are marine specialists within Raincoast and terrestrial specialists and 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 specialists that are interested in those connections between land and sea. We're different in that we have offices and field stations in remote communities and remote landscapes. We're not particularly, um, you know, urban environmentalists that only do online advocacy. Not that there's anything the matter with that, but that's just one way that Raincoast distinguishes ourselves from from other nonprofits. We consider our values, we bring our values to our work. Values important to us um, are animal welfare, which is not animal rights per se, but it's the understanding that as a society and as researchers, we need to consider some of the suffering that animals can be subject to um, in all domains of society, including the way we do research so much. All of our research is is non-invasive. We don't capture animals, put on radio collars and yank teeth and all that sort of stuff. Um, we are interested in supporting Indigenous rights. We recognize that we live and work in unceded territories of First Nations people and governments. And we do our very best and learn day by day and year by year how to do work that is in service of, of the title holders of the areas in which we work. And, and we've had and have long-term relationships with, with a number of, of nations uh, from the Salish Sea and up in the Great Bear Rainforest that really mean a lot to us and have been really, really productive relationships. And we find that our values as conservation scientists, align much more strongly with the values that these nations these cultures have with respect to how the environment should be treated and in contrast with the values that the provincial or the federal government bring to bear in their resource management decisions so it's a really good fit for us as as people that and researchers that, that consider our values in, in how we do our work.
1: Personally, I feel that conservation work is some of the most important work that anyone can do. I applaud you for doing it, and I'm, I'm so grateful that there are people like you who are taking the lead on these important items. What do you feel are the most important issues related to conservation that we are facing right now, at least in your geographical area?
0: Yeah, there are many conservation challenges, but also opportunities facing this coast. I mean, what is top of mind is, is climate disruption, climate change, because uh, it's happening. The pace at which it's happening is accelerating. There's an incredible amount of uncertainty. We don't really know what might happen in the near future. And, and that's, that's a pretty scary mix. Habitat loss, like it is globally, is a top threat. There is a myth, for example, that these coastal temperate rainforests, once they're cut down, will green up and will have But, But even if someone were to spend five minutes in a second or third growth coastal temperate rainforest and look around and use their ears, Um, they would understand really quickly that those second and third growth forests provide nowhere near the sort of structural complexity and habitat and biodiversity, which scales into food for the web of of animal uh, users in that forest, than older, what we call climax forests, you know, uncut rain provide to to the ecosystem and, and, and to us as people. Uh, so habitat loss, there's still lots of logging going, comes in fits and bursts depending on markets and whatnot. But once we cut down those forests, we won't see the ecosystem services that they once provided again for several hundred years, half a millennium or more. And the second and third growth forests that they leave in their wake are changed for centuries, and then things interact. Uh, When we have habitat destruction and climate change operating concurrently on ecosystems, some additional problems can arise with failures, for example, of um, important herbs or shrubs to grow in a forest that's cut down or is is affected around its edges from clear cuts and is additionally hit with changes in temperature or moisture regime. So there's all these interact interacting effects that are that are kind of scary. Because the final thing I'll, I'll mention is um, over exploitation of animal resources in particular uh, fisheries. So let's just think about salmon And not only do they face changes in productivity out at sea, in part owing to climate change, not only do they have to face habitat change in the watersheds in which they come home to spawn, but additionally, we tend to still, despite, you know, decades and millions of dollars of scientific management, we still tend to overexploit salmon. We take too many and, and we for example take the largest of the salmon in a population and that tends to make salmon shrink over time through, through uh, artificial selection or, or unnatural selection uh, and what that does is reduce the not only the biomass of salmon available to the ecosystem but also some of the diversity in runs we lose a lot of small runs on average we lose a lot of the more um, sensitive species to over exploitation and so that's very troubling so in a nutshell climate change habitat uh destruction and over exploitation of resources particularly marine resources are are among the top threats on on this coast i believe
1: now i want to go extensively into the wildlife. But before we do, for listeners who aren't familiar with the forests of Vancouver Island, can you paint a picture of what the first growth forests, what few that we have remaining are like here, and how little we actually still have left of what was originally here?
0: Uh, The the coastal temperate rainforests, I mean, these are incredible ecosystems. They once covered uh, from Northern Mexico, Southern California, along the coastal strip that uh, contained enough moisture, mostly in fog down South uh, in California, all the way up into sort of South uh, East Alaska. uh, What was this strip and the largest strip of its kind of temperate rainforest um, ecosystems that themselves only contributed a very very proportion of total land cover. We have other temperate rainforests in, in, in New Zealand and in South America and other regions, but we had once the largest um, chunk of, of this ancient temperate rainforest. Much of it is gone in the continental United States, the south coast of BC, especially Vancouver Island, it's gone. Mostly, most watersheds have been logged out, especially the low-lying, easy to get to areas. Then we have a, a chunk that much um, less impacted on the central and north coast of British Columbia. Once we get up into Southeast Alaska again, the destruction has been has been pronounced. Uh, the Tongass National Forest is is one of the uh, well, it is the largest volume um, uh, timber extraction places in the world or among the largest. And so lots of roads and clear cuts and South go. Uh, if we are to enter, though, some of the remaining ancient temperate rainforest watersheds, what we see is this credible forest that is um, full of what we call structural complexity there are all sorts of layers and three dimensions of you know a diverse herb layer of 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 annual and perennial plants we have abundant productive shrub layer that that not only feeds birds but feeds us i'm thinking of the, the blueberries and huckleberries uh salmon berries and more. and then we have uh the tree that uh, is comprised of, uh, you know, a handful of very important species like Western red cedar and, and um, hemlock uh, at, and this is very important, at all uh, age and size classes and states of decay. So we have a bunch of baby trees, middle-aged trees, and these giant gorse, grandfather, mother trees. Uh, and many of them are subject to disease as they get older and older, which we tend to think of as a bad thing because it's a disease. But it's an incredibly important thing in terms of forest ecology, in that no tree can live forever, and they start to fall down and get disturbed by wind. And what that does is open up gaps in the forest canopy where light can come in. So the difference between the striking difference between uh, a younger second or third growth forest and an old growth forest is that when you're in you know these tree farms there is a closed canopy it's dark it's a great way to grow trees of uniform age but Uh, and then cut them before disease gets them. But what that does is starve the other layers, the potential herbs and shrubs that could be growing underneath, of light. So it's a very quiet forest, very unproductive herb and shrub layer, quiet because there's very few birds, in stark contrast to these older forests where there's a path of light everywhere and a whole... Whole bunch of layers of different herbs and shrubs and trees of various ages. And if you compare, for example, the the productivity in terms of berry production um, in the younger forest versus the um, old growth forest and it's just orders of magnitude more. Um, and every time we go into a system like that and we rode it and we cut it, what we're doing is we're Kissing goodbye to um, that incredible biodiversity and productivity that that not only benefits uh, wildlife, but but of course benefits us as people that depend on clean water that is produced and and uh, regulated in those watersheds. It 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 takes away opportunities. Uh, to view or to eat wildlife that that make a living in those watersheds, the berries, the regulation of climate, et cetera. So those watersheds that we still do have left, we should hold on tight. And that's what I'm seeing generally on the Central North Coast, where the indigenous nations of the area are wrestling back their authority to manage those watersheds and their fisheries again because they had managed these resources for thousands of years and they've only been interrupted in doing so in the last couple hundred years or so by by colonial governments so it's really important and meaningful to me to be able to work with governments like this that want to do the right thing and want to want to change the the they want to chart their own future in this landscape. And they understand and they know, of course, that their future is coupled to the health of their terrestrial and marine uh, landscapes.
1: As you've indicated, there's so much more complexity and depth to these forests than what may just meet the eye. But just for the sake of uh, the audience, can you tell us the scale? of some of these first growth cedars and fir trees that that we have here and that we are losing?
0: Uh, Well well, first a little bit about the scale of of the trees themselves. Some of these cedars are over a thousand years old and while the firs can be many hundreds of years old. I mean they're they're the size of you know a school bus you know standing on its on its trunk or something and several times higher. So the scale of the, the trees themselves are enormous. The, the scale and pace at which we can um, convert these, you know, once in a lifetime end stage ancient temperate rainforests into these tree farms is staggering. It doesn't take a lot of guys uh, and their equipment, highly mechanized equipment, to convert a watershed and, and a large watershed into a phase of clear cuts and, and forest roads. Uh, You know, I'm talking the matter of months to a handful of years to radically convert a watershed. And many forest operations can have several of these watersheds being uh, destroyed and disturbed at the same time. So it's no doubt that on Vancouver Island, um, for example, we once had about 100 and change, you know, 110 or so uh temperate rainforest watersheds large-scale watersheds and there's just a handful you know under five that are not roaded and subject to clear-cut logging i mean that's incredible and that only took tragic uh, it is tragic and that only took you know really since when logging really got going with uh, mechanical assistance you know, the the middle of the 20th century to now, that much change has occurred it's just absolutely staggering.
1: And it's my understanding that, of course, in the logging industry, there's only certain trees that are of value to them, and yet right. they clear cut everything. Uh, I, right. I I know a lot of ancient yew trees, our Pacific yew trees, are being destroyed, and they're worthless in the logging industry. And yeah. so, they're burying them in the ground or just leaving them there to rot. Yeah. I, I, I make English longbows from yew wood, and, and some of my bows that are only probably about inch and a half in diameter, yeah. I, can, I can count the rings of 70, 80 more years in wow. that inch uh, and a half piece of wow. wood. Neat. And it's, uh, it's just devastating what is happening. Yeah. And of course we see that happening to the forest. What impact is that having then on the wildlife?
0: I mean, it depends on 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 the species. Uh, a few may thrive initially in in clear cuts in what we call the early seral stage, where there's lots of light and there's lots of shrub and seedling production. You will see animals like deer and black bear uh, foraging in these clearcuts. It's not well-stood whether we see them a little more in there because we're better able to see them in clear cuts compared to the forest. Um, but what one really needs to do is understand that and calculate what is the deer food or the black bear food going to be like over the long run. They may get a big boost for a few years while those clear cuts are greening up. Uh, after the canopy starts closing in about you know 15 to 30 years there's not much left in there and there won't be for decades and decades and decades until some of the canopy is is um opened up through wind throw or more likely it's logged on another rotation um so for the the larger mammals that we tend to work on We know through studies here on Vancouver Island, in fact, but mostly up in southeast Alaska that the amount of food that is provisioned to animals that are important to us, like uh, deer and and black bear, they are short in terms of the vegetation that they can consume from forests once they are logged and calculated over the long run. logging is also very hard on on salmon and salmon habitat and a lot of the declines that we've seen in in salmon population can be be traced to the spawning habitat being uh, just impacted or in some cases completely removed because of changes to water flow siltation and that the, the important criteria the conditions that salmon need to spawn successfully um, can be abruptly changed when a watershed is, is lost. So there, there's a few examples in, in, in some of the, you know, classic West Coast animals that people tend to value a lot, uh, black-tailed deer, black bears, and, and salmon. Um, there is some pretty easy examples to illustrate what impacts they face with, with clear-cut. Logging.
1: Right. Now, of course, these forestry, uh, the forestry companies are replanting trees right. by the tens of millions. Yeah, yeah. What is the problem or the deficiency in these replanted forests?
0: Yeah, uh, but the replanted forests tend to, not tend to, always lack the, the diversity in terms of species diversity in those forests and and what we refer to as structural diversity or structural complexity. So they're they're growing crops of trees and the trees can grow remarkably quickly in this environment and year round pretty much in this environment. Um, But what they do is they grow real quick and they um, their canopies, their their branches block the the sun for all other or most other plants that are trying to make a living in that for us so we it, basically it, it seems like it's a biological desert you're walking through these tree farms where very little light gets through those closed canopies and and we just see very little uh herb layer uh, and shrub layer in those forests. And and those conditions persist for decades and decades. So so that they're planting trees and it kind of looks like a forest from a distance. Uh, What I invite people that don't believe me to do is take a walk in those tree farms. And you feel it instantly when you're inside of them. Uh, You hear the birds that you hear in an adjacent chunk of remaining old growth forest and you understand very quickly just from looking around and and listening that these are very different forests uh, despite the kind of seductive simple and wrong arguments presented by the forest industry that are very proud of 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 how forests have been replanted in 1976 and look at them now it looks so green that hillside but but these are very different forests.
1: How important are these mother trees these giants that they are removing to the sustainability of the replanted forest?
0: Oh that's 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 a really good question yeah some of the old trees are remarkably important in that they have stood the test of time in that they have withstood some of the evolutionary pressures imposed on them. I'm thinking by disease. I'm thinking by uh, challenges with moisture or temperature regimes. Uh, you know the possibility of wind damage. You know those, those trees that made it through the last many centuries. These big giant trees are incredibly important in in the um, dynamics of future forests and that they can contribute genetic material that uh has stood the test of of time some might some might argue while the environment's different now and the genes that may have been important to those giant trees may not be as important in 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 today's uh environmental challenges however what those old trees tend to have among them collectively is a hunch of genetic diversity, and that differs a lot from uh, trees that are start their life in labs, essentially uh, that are grown into little seedlings from very reduced, comparatively reduced set of of parents. Of so, the genetic diversity that we are planting in our forest, despite the best efforts of forest genetists, are nowhere near Capable of offering for us the sort of genetic diversity that nature does by itself and has done so for thousands of years on this coast, and what that does is set up our future forests, our current and future forests, to be less resilient to climate change and other stressors. Um, uh, Right now, I know of work out of UBC, I think, that that is looking at how some of the cedars, as you probably know and your listeners have, have observed, some of the, these beautiful Western red cedars that like to get their feet wet. They like to be in moist soils, are doing terribly in the last few years under mm-hmm. drought pressure, all those that that ugly red that's they're they're getting burned alive basically. So, so and forest geneticists are are rapidly trying to assess um what genes are responsible for making them susceptible or less susceptible to these these drought stresses. Um, you cannot plant a forest full of genetically similar trees and expect them to be resilient to the type of challenges that that climate Disruption and other stressors will throw at them. I I like to tell my, my my undergraduate students, you can think of genetic diversity as kind of like the keys that open the doors to the future, doors that may be closed by the stressors of climate disruption or novel diseases and other things. And those individual plants or fishes or whatever they may be that have the right keys, and some keys might be very rare keys, you need to hold on to those so you can go through those doors in the future that may be closed because of new diseases or new um, uh, new climate stressors. So, so having a big set of keys can open lots of doors to the future and having very few keys, very little genetic diversity in our forests. Um, those forests are not going to be able to be resilient to the the problems that are the challenges that will befall them.
1: Hmm. Now, I could talk forests for quite some time and it sounds like you Aren't could too. Cool? But I do also want to talk about the wildlife. You've mentioned a fair bit of the impact on salmon. I'm wondering sure. about some of our other very special West Coast animals, such as you mentioned bears, the spirit bear, and also wolves and what's yeah. happening with our wolves.
0: Yeah. In general, British Columbia is remains a stronghold for a while wildlife compared to many other places in north america a we're blessed to have a lot of species of wildlife uh, bc is the most biodiverse region in north america when it comes to wildlife we're incredibly lucky and that is owing in part to the incredible habitat complexity we got interior plateaus we got mountain ranges we got coastal habitat we have you know uh, temperate uh, habitat dry interior habitat uh, we got some desert for god's sakes uh, we got you know northern latitudes southern latitude I mean, we've got it all and and additionally uh the settlers that came in now in the 17 1800s uh didn't do the kind of widespread um persecution or at least its effects as Spatial effects weren't as pronounced as they were, say, in the continental United States or our prairie provinces where a lot of the big wildlife was gone, was lost forever. And so we're very lucky to have things like grizzly bears and black bears and, and mountain lions and new wolves and wolverine and marten, mink fisher, um, uh, some bison, uh, uh, moose, caribou uh white-tailed black-tailed deer still um across most of british columbia with the exception of the lower mainland of course was hit pretty hard um, we've lost caribou from from high to guai um, which aren't doing very well right now um, caribou in many places are not doing well often we can trace the fate to the wild ones we have lost more or are losing right now to habitat destruction in particular from the forest industry and the oil and gas industry in the in the context of 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 caribou in particular Uh, moose uh in interior regions uh or most most of their distribution in bc are doing very poorly likely to do with forest fire suppression and that Forest fires were once a very important part of the ecology of interior interior forests. That's how they renew themselves. That's how they were so productive. But with after decades and decades of, of forest fire suppression, this has had a, a really big impact on, on the type of uh, and quality of browse um, uh, that that moose need. Moose additionally have been hit by um, climate change uh, in that they don't do particularly well in warm winters when they are um, subject to infestation by ticks. Uh, ticks don't do well when it's cold and when it's not cold in winter anymore. Ticks can do a number on, on populations. Um, so by and large even though we're blessed still to have lots of wildlife in BC, kind of historically, and even in modern times, there are a number of, of really important populations that we are watching, um, blink out in real, in real time. I'm thinking mountain caribou, especially.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the impact of trophy hunting on some of these great animals? Sure.
0: sure. One thing that, that men unfortunately like to, you do. know, it's, only a small subset of hunters. I myself am, am a hunter, and uh, that's that's what my family and I eat is is deer and, and moose and salmon, uh, primarily some halibut. Uh, and hunting, I recognize, to be a really important part of how humans interact with the landscape. You know, the indigenous peoples. That's that's part of who they are and how they interact with with um, their oceans and their forests is, is by finding food of, in them. And for eight or so percent of, of British Columbians, um, recreational hunting is really important activity, economically important, uh, socially very important, etc. cetera. Um, I think about trophy hunting a lot uh, as a hunter. And I think in particular about the troubling nature of trophy hunting and that men who do so and it's a small proportion of all hunters that don't hunt to feed their families but rather hunt to feed their egos by killing animals uh, that they have no intention of eating. I'm thinking in BC in particular of grizzly bears, uh, gray wolves and mountain lions. And it's troubling to me because um, when an animal that has the same sort of physiology that you and I do and can feel pain and can suffer like you and I, we need to evaluate what are the benefits to the hunters given that these animals are paying the ultimate cost, the ultimate price um, uh, to be subject to this activity. And, and to me, that sort of calculus does, does not add up that some man can, can uh, cause suffering and death uh, for what? Not not to bring life and sustenance to, to him and his family, um, but instead to emerge with a trophy to show off to to his his buddies. And to me, that's deeply troubling. I think also uh, I'm quick to point out that not in not all cases, and in fact, maybe only a minority of cases does trophy hunting actually threaten numerically a population so there there can be so called numer- numerically sustainable trophy hunting in that the populations can recover they could reproduce new let's say wolves and if you trophy hunt 10% of a wolf population it's very likely that that 10% will be back the next year through reproduction so many people are very satisfied with that that as long as the population isn't impacted by such activity then we should in their view which i think is wrong should justify and regulate such an activity for me i think that's very wrong ethically that we shouldn't be killing things if we have no intention of eating them and that sort of behavior that kills animals not for not to meet basic needs but to meet shallow needs such as attention in terms of the trophies that these animals provide. That's a sort of behavior that in other domains, we as a society has, have, have quite reasonably agreed that should be outlawed. There's lots of social norms and that have been codified into laws that, that tell us we really should not act violently towards one another and towards animals. That sort of gratuitous violence has been outlawed in so many other domains. And it's just puzzling to me that we still have a provincial government that normalizes and regulates this sort of activity that's so grossly misaligned with with societal values that that most people, and abundant poll data suggests this to be the case, um, are strongly opposed to such hunting. They, in general, support hunting for food but for hunting for trophy um, it's it's largely i mean more than 80 90 percent of british Columbians, including including hunters are opposed to that sort of behavior now
1: of course many of our listeners will know that our local beloved wolf Takea yeah was, was recently killed by a trophy hunter according to numbers from Raincoast over 1200 bc wolves are killed annually for recreation
0: yeah
1: how can our wolf population sustain this type of killing yeah or can it
0: yeah um you know in many cases and and some conservation colleagues may may raise their eyebrows there there's good evidence that they actually can numerically sustain that sort of high levels of exploitation in that wolves in particular are really good breeders. So if they get knocked back a little bit, or even a lot, they can have a lot of babies, they have babies every year and those babies, those pups are more likely to survive. So you remove even 30, 40, sometimes 50% of a population and you can have the same number of wolves the next year because of high pup uh, reproduction and survival and for some people and i think they're wrong that's okay they they reason that well we can hunt these wolves because this doesn't threaten their population but in my view that's a very narrow um view of how wildlife ought to be managed or more generally how we ought to interact with with wildlife and there's a number of other ecological and evolutionary implications of exploiting wolves or any wildlife at, at high rates. One obvious one is when we kill at high rates, we tend to reduce the average age of, of animals in the population. If, if in any given year, the probability of dying through uh, uh, a bullet wound is high, then wolves in this case tend to not live very long so we have a bunch of juvenile wolves running through the ecosystem and juveniles like in our species teenagers if you will tend to behave very very differently get in more human wildlife conflict as one example kill different prey kill at different rates etc and all sorts of cascading ecological um implications can arise with heavy exploitation also with heavy exploitation you can remove rare genetic um, variants within the population Uh, just similar to the our discussions about um, forests needing variation, so too do wildlife populations and then when you remove high proportion of individuals each year you remove genetic variation mm-hmm. um so there there are some a number of scientific reasons why we should not be narrowly focused on simple rule that if if wolf or grizzly bear populations can withstand this sort of killing and exploitation then we should just go ahead and allow it so there's some ecological and evolutionary reasons why we should be concerned as scientists. But for me, Todd, the most important thing we need to consider is, is the ethics of killing an, an animal, not for food, but for a trophy. Uh, mm-hmm. This, you know, whereas the scientific problems with killing wolves and other large carnivores can be disputed and sometimes compellingly, There is no argument in my view, and and, I mean, this is shared by most British Columbians that can counter the reality that killing animals for sport and trophy is unethical. And uh, in other domains of how we we regulate activities in society, ethics play a role. And what society believes should be a reasonable way to interact with with wildlife should matter, should make its way to wildlife management decisions. But for for some reason in British Columbia and many other jurisdictions, we still manage um, wildlife like it's the 1950s. And despite the fact that society has really woken up to the idea that we should uh, interact in a more ethical way. One example of of society kind of, Waking up to the reality that their wildlife is managed by outdated values comes from California in the mid 1990s. They had a, a ballot measure or referendum or something of that type that got incredibly high support, and that that uh, decision was to outlaw the the hunting of mountain lions of cougars in California, not because because people thought there are too few cougars and there were scientific reasons not to hunt them, sustainability reasons not to hunt them, but rather they simply believed that hunting them for sport and trophy and not to eat them uh, was unethical. And that was a really important moment in the history of, of contemporary wildlife management, where the values of society um, were recognized and led to, you know, a pretty transformative change to to wildlife policy.
1: You've written at least a few articles on Takeya.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm wondering what Takeya the wolf has meant to you and, and what his killing sure. means to you.
0: Sure. Um, I mean, he was a very special wolf, of course, in that he... Did some very special things and 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 ecologically and in terms of living on these tiny tiny islands off of victoria making almost all of his living from from marine foods so just some striking and interesting ecology that that he put on display that he challenged us as humans to not bother him too much on that island and you know people didn't do Two egregious things and that i mean some i believe got way too close to him and some even fed him and left him water and you know well-meaning things but but he challenged us to give you know a wolf two square kilometers just one wolf in canada two square kilometers where he wasn't persecuted and harassed like wolves are in the rest of the places where they still exists so he is very special in that way and then he had a you know pretty pretty dramatic sort of act two and where he just this january tried to disperse i believe and back to um the sioux kills to find a mate this was the the height of meeting season where he left his little island off Victoria streak streak through um, uh, the city and was eventually caught by a conservation officer service that that um, that deposited at him the next day out past souk and uh, and it only took about two months before a hunter to kill him, not in self-defense, not in protection of property, but just because that hunter had the legal ability to do so and killed this animal. And to me, of course, that's very sad uh, because this was an animal that I saw on a number of occasions, not too many, but yet a special story. But I I also want to remind people that no matter how special his story is, it's perhaps no more special than the stories of, you know, 1,200 other uh, wolves in BC that that were just doing their wolf thing and were killed primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for sport, trophy, or just plain old persecution. And so for mourning, and, you know, my message for people that if we're, you know, appropriately mourning Takaya, we should also pause to think about 1,200 other wolves that that endured suffering and and paid the ultimate price with their lives, Um, not so that they could feed a family, but so they could um, feed some some hunter's ego. Um, So that's how I feel.
1: What can we do to help put a stop to trophy hunting in British Columbia?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a really important question. We're up against uh, tremendous inertia in a system—a uh, provincial wildlife management system that's very resistant to change. However, uh, with the ban of the grizzly bear trophy hunt just—you know—a year and a half ago there's some precedent and again that grizzly bear trophy hunt was shut off not because of fear that there are too few grizzly bears but rather the government appropriately and accurately surmised that society just doesn't support that sort of hunting anymore and that sort of rationale uh, and reasoning is is entirely transferable uh to wolves with the exception of maybe some small areas in b c there is no numerical threat uh, of hunting to wolf populations, but it's a behavior it's an activity that's so grossly misaligned with societal values that that it too should be banned um, so the the way to get there uh, if um, recent history is informative is for people led by some influential conservation organizations, Raincoast, uh, uh, I believe the, the most influential among them, um, need to apply persistent, compelling, uh, well-articulated uh, pressure on, on the provincial government to consider outline. Outlawing that activity. And there's some ways by which this can be conducted through, um, you know, social action or direct action rather uh, by maybe other environmental organizations or more sophisticated lobbying efforts. Um, so I encourage your listeners to go check out raincoast.org or to kind of learn all the ways in which this sort of pressure can be applied.
1: And not to focus only on the trophy hunting problem, as I call it, that we face here. Uh, also, having spoken about our deteriorating forests, what mm. can what can people do to help protect what remains of our beautiful first growth BC forests?
0: Again, I believe that that the pressure on the provincial government, which in in the Crown's view anyways, has authority over most of the the forest, the non-privately held forest, the so-called Crown Forest. But increasingly, I believe uh, a route by which society can support good, careful, long term landscape and wildlife management is to support Indigenous nations in their resurgence, in their um, regaining of of their authority to manage wildlife and forests again Uh, because by and large these nations are are kicking ass and 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 changing the status quo. And um, I mean, I've I've bet my career on it essentially in terms of of working with first nations people who i believe are not only the inherent title holders and rights holders to these places but also and additionally i believe they will make and are making decisions that are by and large much more sustainable so i encourage listeners to give some thought about how they can support uh, indigenous nations and their resurgence whether it be giving to Uh, indigenous nations financial or other in-kind support to help them uh, fight the Kinder Morgan pipeline for example to supporting their education efforts for their young people um, putting themselves through through university and becoming the next generation of indigenous resource managers and and scientists and and watchmen and guardians etc I did some thought about that, how how in general, you know, more broadly how um, society can support reconciliation and resurgence efforts because those will um, lead to to environmental benefits without a doubt.
1: Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking time to share these important things with us. Can you let the listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work and Raincoast?
0: Sure. For, for those interested more in our work at Raincoast, I encourage them to go to raincoast.org, uh, or find our, uh, research laboratory at the university of Victoria. If they just, uh, search Raincoast lab at UVic or the university of Victoria, they'll find, uh, um, good access to our work.
1: And are there any other resources that you would recommend for people who are interested in learning more about this books, podcasts, films, research, uh, anything that you can think of that's potentially influential?
0: Yeah. Again, Raincoast is a really nice sort of clearing house for, for a whole bunch of multimedia resources, whether they be photos or, videos uh, about the coast, uh, scientific uh, papers and more digestible uh, reports um, oriented towards uh, uh, the public. I think Raincoast is a really good sort of clearinghouse for for resources. Great. Well, thank you again. It's
1: been an honor to have you on the show.
0: Right on, Todd. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it a lot, man. Thanks so much.
1: And I applaud you for all the work that you are doing on behalf of all of us and our beautiful environment. I hope you have been inspired by Dr. Chris Daramont to make positive contributions to your environment. Ultimately, your environment is shared by all living creatures, which means even small impacts can reverberate globally. One simple thing you can do in BC is to sign your name to Raincoast email campaign to end trophy hunting of wolves. You can also donate to their work if it calls to you. For education opportunities, connect with Chris and his lab. Also, check out the School of Permaculture Design at Pacific Rim College. In the fall of 2020, we are launching three new permaculture certificate programs to complement our comprehensive Diploma of Permaculture Design and Resilient Ecosystems. Go to PacificRimCollege.com for more. For online learning and becoming more self-reliant and shifting your footprint to one of land stewardship, check out our two incredible online herbal programs at PacificRimCollege.online. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, tread lightly and protect loudly.